0: is Sarah Smith. I'm the host of Girls on Film podcast and I am with the lovely Cara Concilio whose incredible documentary I watched this weekend. And Cara, if you could just tell me a little bit, you know, about the documentary um, and how you started it. Sure. Ti- you know, tell, tell us its title and when you started it and why. So the documentary is called For the Love of Friends, and it's
1: about the life and work of Brent Nicholson Earl, who is an AIDS activist who, in 1986, when he was losing so many friends to AIDS, decided to run around the perimeter of the United States to raise money and awareness for AIDS, and he uh, ran twenty months. He ran almost a marathon a day, six days a week, for those twenty months as he went around America. And he actually went a little satellite run to parts of Canada as well. So, oh my god, really an amazing feat! And I did not know his story when I when this started. You know, I I got connected to Brent. Uh, through my mother-in-law, Barbara Martinez, who is uh, an AIDS activist, you know she wow. had experienced a loss. Her brother died of AIDS when he was in his twenties, right. and it really impacted her. And she is devoted so much of her life to AIDS activism, and and had, you know, a foundation in Venezuela, and now works with Brandon. Uh, on this event called "Out of the Darkness," which happens every December first, and you know, Barbara and Brent had been friends over the years. I think they met in the nineteen nineties, and you know, um, Brent had said to her at some point, "I wish someone would tell my story." <gasps> And so she started thinking about that. And, you know, at at the same time, um, my husband, Alex Charner, and I had started this small production company, Hut Productions. And we'd been making, you know, short films and um, different projects over the years. So Barbara and David, my father-in-law, came to us and said, do you think that you could tell Brent's story? So that's where it started, um, was was really from that. And I found um, there was... In I think 1990, end of the decade issue for People Magazine is the only national coverage about Brent's run. And so um, I I read this article in People Magazine about, you know, his run for the end of AIDS around America. And then uh, we had met briefly, you know, a few times, but then I had a meeting with him to sort of pitch him the movie. (laughs) Right. Right. And get to know him and see if it's something that he wanted and see if he would allow us to tell his story. Yeah. So that's, that's where it started It you know, that's and okay, it's funny because but... people had asked him before, I think someone at some point was interested in making a feature film and proposed Bette Midler to play his mother, but they wanted to change the story a lot. So okay. he said, no. <laughs> so, you know, I knew, I knew I had to approach him, um, with a, with
0: a vision for it. Right. I, I want to tell you, I watched this film and, um, you know, I was ready to um, just you know take some notes. I ended up taking writing down like four pages of notes. <laughs> wow! <laughs> and and um, I'm just gonna, you know, I watched. I've seen some um, some movies about the HIV AIDS epidemic, and when you know when I was in I was in high school in the early '80s, college in the late eighties and college was at Rutgers university outside New York city. And, um, I remember him as I was watching this, I was like, wait a minute. I remember this man. I remember because I was, there was local for me, New York city. That was my local news. Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't know if it was when he came back after the run and yeah. there was a lot of press coverage. It might've been them, but I remembered him. <clears throat> but of course, you know, the other hour and a half of this movie, I didn't, I wasn't aware of. Yeah. Um, uh, but really it's, it, it was so fascinating to um, see how you put this together. I watched it from a perspective of, a director and a producer and an editor. And then also from another perspective, as a person who was coming of age in this, in this like 10, 10, 12 year period of almost a fanaticism about HIV and it's a gay disease and only gay people get it. Gay men get it because they're bad. You know, it it was really it was really marketed that simply in mm-hmm. in my in my memory. Um, and I remember being scared of people that had HIV AIDS. And not wanting to touch them, or talk to them, or be near them because I might get it. Mm-hmm. Um, this is an ignorant girl, um, who's who watched Elizabeth Taylor talk about uh, HIV/AIDS, and then Princess Diana, of course, mm-hmm. who made such a big difference. Um, for I found I found Brent to be absolutely charming and the determination that he had was so, it, it, at first it felt like it was almost hidden. Um, and I love the way he describes his life leading up to the point where he, he was challenged by his friends about being inside the gay community, about yeah. being a real, a real part of it. And that seemed like a turning point. What, was that a turning yeah. point for oh, you? absolutely.
1: You know, when he talked about it, and he talked about you know this discovery of these amazing um, gay dance clubs, and and just the freedom of the late seventies and the early eighties, and just sort of living that New York artist lifestyle. And and there's that point in the movie, and you know, he told me this story as well when his he calls him his mentor, Mel Sharon, who was you know a fixture in the music industry in New York. And, and he, he said, You like being part of the gay community? He said, Yeah. And he said, Well, our community's in trouble and you have to help them. You can't do nothing. And Brent really took that to heart um, because he was really just enjoying being out, being part of his community, and, and having a great time um, and kind of ignoring everyone who was dying. <laughs> You know, kind of just like I, eh, you know, he, he didn't at that point. You know, he says in the movie, I couldn't fathom being like a buddy for someone who was dying because you know they had people with uh, people in the hospital standing by, staying by bedsides as people were, were dying, and right. you know, that was some of the activism that was going on when there was there was nothing other than helping people die peacefully. There was nothing. Yeah. You know, it was, it was so terrible. And, you know, he, he tells the story about, you know, having this vision while he was running in Central Park. You know, he started doing these little races um, and having this vision as the leaves were falling that millions of people were going to die from AIDS and that he had he could see it. And then he had this calling that he had to do something Um It very much was a calling for him and then sort of figuring out what it is. What is, what is the calling and what can I as an individual without any money and really had not been a runner, um, do to, to help his friends, to help the community. Yep.
0: Yep. I want to tell you that, I, you know, I know that you, that you were thinking, what, what film do I use? How do I, how do I enhance the vision and the b-roll that you either shot or 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 took or whatever of of autumn and leaves falling was perfect. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and your timing on the cuts was perfect. And I I also want to say something about the very beginning of the film. I don't know how you chose that incredibly simple but striking music with hmm. that that had like one or two three notes just that kept repeating mm-hmm. and it was it was just so um, it was so simple, but so strong. Mm. And, and I, I'm going to cry now thinking about it. But <laughs> I swear to God, you know, because I, I, it's so well done, Kara.
1: It was, I was just- so lucky. The composer, Solomon Lerner, we had worked together on a short, a short that I directed, CIT, and sort of, you know, developed our working relationship. So when this project came up, I knew we were going to need a score because I, I feel like as someone who deeply uh, is connected to music, I feel like the score is so important. And the Huge. collaboration. Yeah. Like working with the composer, you know, obviously we cut it with temp, temp music. And then going from there, you know, to working with Salomon, and I would do a whole um, basically track list of what did I need the music to do? how did I want it to make the audience feel? And then what did I imagine in terms of like orchestration and tempi? And, and then we would just go back and forth. I mean, I'm brutal. I, I would make it do like, you know, 10 takes on one track until the the film came
0: alive, you know? Right. Right. It has to be, people don't always understand that you actually have to go to a place of almost being insane mm-hmm. um, when you're creative and, and, matching music to film is really hard to yeah. do and you have to like forget about everything around you even where you are almost I mean mm-hmm. just to to be able to get to understand how emotive and how the psychology how the the auditory affects the psychology, then affects the body, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I found myself getting chills, getting upset, feeling exhilarated. Mm-hmm. And, well, it, and something yeah. that's super
1: exciting to do in a feature that you can't do in a short is you can develop these sort of late oh. motifs, these musical things that come back. So, yes. you know, we had one for his mother, we had yeah. one for running, we had all yeah. of these different things, and then even the music because. Um, Solomon also wrote two of the songs for the play for the theater show. And we'll talk about the theater show, but like, you know, Ugh. so he was able to weave in some of that music into the score. So even yes. we have like diagenic music, but then you also then continue to experience those themes throughout the score, which is I yeah. just thought was super brilliant.
0: The, um, the actors, you know, so, so people will watch this movie and they will understand that, that there is a story being told, a play being rehearsed, and, um, you know, a history being looked back on, all happening at the same time. So you are you were slicing and dicing throughout the documentary. Mm-hmm. And I think you did a fantastic job. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I know you had a lot of still photography that you used, and um, the shot that, the, 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 the still that really gave me, like somebody kicked me in the stomach that I wrote down all in caps on my notes, genius with the music and the timing was him, was Brent running and you could see Mount Rushmore. Oh yeah, that is just (gasps) an amazing photograph. Like, oh my God, it was was, was a religious experience for me. It was fantastic, Cara.
1: Yeah, and finding those photographs, you know, when we started, we had no idea if we had anything um you know how i found yeah. the the news yeah. footage was i mean this was way we, we we finished shooting the you know principal photography in like february of, of 2020 and then the pandemic hit and we had not yet gone to brent's storage or his archives to get anything we had no idea what we had and part of the reason that we did do the theater shows i was worried that we had nothing Um, because when you just did a a straight up research, you know, there was a little clip here, but nothing that's easy to find because media from the eighties is just in general, not archived well. Um, And so, you know, eventually, I don't know, even like a year later, we finally, it was safe to go to storage and go through. And we got all these videotapes and we got all these video, And then, and then we found a VCR, you know, started going through all of Brent's tapes. and then we, Like we found the footage and then it's like, oh my God, now we have to figure out how to license this footage. Cause like, okay, the NBC footage, the ABC footage, you go to them, no big problem. But then it's like, okay, WQR, whatever, in Texas that doesn't exist anymore. Who right. owns this footage and who can license this to? So that was like years of process of just licensing uh. footage and figuring out what to use. And then finding the photographs as well. Um, Alex uh, Charner, one of the producers, just spent, I don't even know, a hundred hours. Because um, all of those photos were on slides. They weren't on photos. So it was going through all of these slides and trying to find photos and then, you know, digitizing the slides. Um, so it was a process which anyone who's made a documentary will understand like the need for good archival materials and it's a long
0: process. And it's why, you know, some people just do that as a job. <laughs> oh, I got it. When I, um, I moved to Atlanta in 1992 and I got a job in the marketing and like promo department at WSB television in Atlanta, Georgia And they said, Sarah, we need someone to uh, create a database of the last 30 years of video. Wow! And they sent me into this dusty closet where there was piles of VHS tapes (laughs) all over the place. And I was like, oh, my God where do I, it took me three months. And all I did was scroll through footage every 20 seconds or a minute. I would jot down a note. This is what this is what we got. Mm-hmm. This is where we are. And I went through that. And then like a dummy, I went to interview over at CNN and they were like, what have you been doing? And I said, <laughs> I created a library at WSB. And they were like, oh my God, can you create one for us? Wow. For CNN. Yeah. So I did CNN. So I completely, completely get yeah. it. Yeah. It's amazing. The VHS well, tapes. Oh, there were so sneezing. many. I was losing. Yeah. yeah. there it was, was so
1: horrible. It's so much work. And there was so much of that footage from some of the regional news um, stations that they didn't have the original. Like there was a okay. fire. So they licensed us to use. The footage that we had digitized because, and there yeah. was no other way to get it. So yeah. like some of them are not ideal, you know, they're damaged, but we just, you know, there was no other option. It was like, well, we you got to use it. You got to use it. Um, someone told me that, like gave me that advice, like you'll always end up when you do a documentary feature using like your worst footage that you never thought you would use. because It'll yeah. be the one thing that you have to use. Yeah.
0: And it's, to me, it's really amazing. You know, you can write down all the footage you have and you can have your but your mind is still, your brain is still a Rolodex of all of that footage. Mm-hmm. And you're going to be cutting things together and you're all of a sudden going to think, you're going to remember something that you have Yeah. somewhere. And they're going to be like, this is where it has to go. Yeah. And it. Well, then it I
1: rely on the like, transcription so much for that, like all of the interviews, transcribing mm-hmm. all of them because, yeah. you know, you can be working on a sequence and you know, it's not quite working. And it's like, did one other person talk about this? And might there be three words that could bridge this transition, you know? So it's, it was really interesting learning how the writing process happens for a feature documentary. Like it's, it's really, you know, we did, I did do like a paper script. I did a paper cut I, I did the first cut of the film, which was four hours. My paper cut turned into four really? hours.
0: Wow! And
1: then I, and then I gave it to my editor, Greg Abbott. And then we worked together over, you know, years to, to get it down. Um, but it's such a process of, you know, structure. Like you were talking about, we have all of these elements and how do you go back and forth. It's sort of that meanwhile, back at the ranch, classic structure of like, you start a thread and then you go to the other thread and how you navigate that so that the audience doesn't get lost, but also you keep them you know, invested and entertained.
0: I just, a question just popped into my head for you, Cara. Did you dream about this film? You
1: know, I feel like I've always been dreaming about film since I was young. Like I, I don't know when the film bug really got me, but like, I would say high school, early high school is when I really started like you know, getting into film, I got like a hundred greatest films and I would, you know, go to the video store and rent all the Fellini and all of that. And then, right. you know, went to school at first was a film major, but, um, I went to UC Berkeley, which was very academic film program and I wanted to make stuff. And so I ended up going back into theater because there was no production. Um, so, you know, a feature film a documentary is not something I always, I ever thought I would make a feature documentary, but it's been so amazing to have my first feature of any kind and just, you know, this childhood dream, um, come true. You know, it's like when you love film and you, you sit at the end of the, in the theater watching the credits and think about like, what could my job be? Could I do this? You know, and, and then you, and then all of a sudden, you know, you, you you've done it. You've done it and you'll keep doing it and there'll be many projects. But like the first feature I feel like is something particularly special and absolutely. You
0: know,
1: I always joke like if I die the film exists. It's like I don't have any children. It's so your films become kind of like this thing that you leave behind for people. Yeah. Yep. Yeah.
0: For sure. Um there were a couple of lines in this movie that really jumped out at me. One thing that Brent said was uh that was again like another I don't a gut punch or slap in the face or kick in the head for me was a prophet is never accepted by his own people. Mm -hmm. And all I could think about in, in that moment was Jesus and his group of prophets and how hardworking they were Mm -hmm. and how reviled they were at times. And, um, and I understood exactly what Brent meant at that moment, and I just love, I loved how you put that in, and it was that was profound, a profound thing for him to say. Hmm. Um, but you didn't just stick on it like a like a emotional moment. You you paused there, and you kept kept moving forward, even though that was like. <gasps> Yeah. I don't know. Well, it just, it was really well done.
1: It, it came out of the fact that when he, he's from sort of the Niagara Falls area, Lockport, New York.
0: and So, am I. so oh, am I. Oh, really? Yes. That's amazing. We, when he had the Niagara Gazette, I was like, wait a minute.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. So, you paper. know, he, he's from
1: there. And, and and I think in the longer cut, we had more about this, but we had to get it to broadcast length. But when he ran through his hometown They wouldn't offer him a police escort. They wouldn't acknowledge what he was doing. So he's returning home and there's a part of him that wants that recognition. And then later in the film, he talks about this fantasy of running through the Castro in San Francisco and people Mm -hmm. cheering and that it never really happened. It happened when he got back to New York, but that when he went around the country, for the most part, there was no big parades, you know, there was none of that, but what he learned along the way is I think the most, some of the most valuable things that he did was visit people who were in hospice and who were dying and be able to tell them that he was out there to speak for them, to fight for them. And I think that's what he continues to do. You know, he still carries this obligation, this need to continue to fight for all the people who were lost, all of his friends and, and, you know this idea of ghosts haunting him yes you know yes. It, you know it, it, i think he he still feels it he says this he says he's still suffering from ptsd from losing
0: right. so many people yep yep and that he will always be haunted by all of the by the ghosts of all yeah. that he has lost um i wanted to go to one of the one of the shots that you had where you really really showed how he was not like a trained athlete mm-hmm. and he said i ran this first race in dress shoes <laughs> and you had a picture of it which showed his face like coming i think it was coming across the finish line yeah and then you and then you pulled out on the still and showed his dress shoes with the laces <laughs> yeah and held it and i was like and i'm so glad that you held it because i was totally fascinated by that because i'm a runner uh-huh and and i was like i was like how how could anybody i know i mean i that? In dress shoes. It's, it's <laughs> unbelievable. I mean.
1: He has this fortitude and, you know, the, this was the big thing. And there's that section in the film where he has this grand idea that he's going to run around America. And his best friend, Anita, says one little problem. You're not a runner. You know, right. you, you don't run. So, you know, no how problem. are you going to go from not running to like running a marathon a day? but that's what the call that's what he was called to do and so he's like i'm just gonna figure it out i'll just do it um which some people might think is crazy but brent was like i have i have to do it i don't have a choice um so yeah i mean i can't sometimes people tell me oh i ran a marathon and i was like that's amazing and then i think about brent and just the amount of running that he did um through so much pain and you know you know, in the movie, it talks about, I I, like ask him, you know, how do you, how did you go on with all the blisters and the stress fractures and everything? And he's like, well, I mean, my friends were sick and they were dying. And that, so my pain was nothing. It was nothing compared to what they were going through. So, you know, it's kind of just amazing that he could sort of mind over matter his way through every, every day. And they had no money too. That was the other thing is, you know, they were yeah. raising money. Um, his friends are in New York,
0: setting your up graphics tables. of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. <laughs> <are frigging> awesome, <laughs> and, and your maps, your your graphics, your maps. Your peanut oh, yes, yeah. that's the actual
1: map. So you know, okay. they, they had that in the in the RV on the wall, and yeah. then when they were, ran through a place, they would put a pin. Yep. So you know, we found that in storage, and when we found that map. were just like like, oh my god we have the map
0: yeah joy (laughs) joy, and then you do all this graphics to like take the pin you know you put the pins back in and yeah no it was good it was very good it seems like a simple thing but you can you actually can really show movement and progress that way with a graphic and it would and again to the peanut butter and jelly sandwich graphic (laughs) like (laughs) <laughs> I have I have two kids and I'm like, "Oh my god, that looks like my cutting board when I was in the morning when I was making these sandwiches for these kids to go to go to school." Um same thing. Mm-hmm. Um there was um, a line that he said where he Brent said that um this is right right before the Mount Rushmore mm-hmm. shot cuz I know you used it twice. Yes. Um I did watch the. I did watch it, Kakara. I can tell. I can tell. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I watched it. Um, he said, "I had to. I have to provide a champion," and that was really moving to me. That he sacrificed. The sacrifice there is astonishing, and. Later on, when um, I believe I believe the woman's name is Tara Keener, yeah, the Tara. road manager, and she talks about his body um, and the the brutalness of this activity, all of this running t- running ten thousand miles for mm-hmm. crying out loud, and and the impact it left on his body. He didn't care about that. He didn't worry about that. And it, it does seem like the, like he had this mission from God above or from some other place, yeah. and that that really came across. Um, Absolutely. Well, he talks way. Yeah, he talks about you know
1: this message from his father who had died. Yep. Saying you need to do. Yeah. What Terry Fox did for cancer, you need to do for AIDS, and mm-hmm. you know Terry Fox um, had run around Canada. Um, yep. because, and he's still a you know, very important historical figure in Canada. Yep. So he's talked about that as like, I knew exactly what he meant. I had to run around America. You know, he was so clear and it, exactly that, you know, a call from God, a call from his dead father, Um. you know, that he had to take action. And I think, you know, this call of realizing that he couldn't just go on with his life as it had been going on that, yep. that, and, and I think for anyone in New York at the time, you know, it was just devastating to hear about the theater community and, and all of the artists that were dying. And just that, you know, it really hit New York first. And I feel like people in the rest of the country didn't really understand. So I think a lot of the motivation for Brent was like, just to get the message out, like, you know, this is coming. This is, this is something that is, we we have to talk about it. Um, We have to educate people and we have to stop the fear. Like you were talking about your own fear when you don't yep. know, when you don't understand. Right. Um, that if you hug someone, you can't get it. Um, the people had no understanding at the time. And so, you know, for him to go into these communities and also to fundraise for the local, um, LGBT, but it wouldn't be LGBTQ then, but LGBT right. <laughs> uh, tea yep. and, um, you know, AIDS, local AIDS organizations to help them raise some money. And, yep. and to also, you know, Tara talks about this and I found this so moving is like, to be the visible person out, like out in the community, because it people were, champion. yeah, yeah. And, and people were so <laughs> afraid, what did. yeah, yeah, like people were afraid that they would lose their jobs if they were out, or
0: you know, if people knew that they had contracted AIDS or HIV. The, the soundbite from um, I'm going to go back to um, Tara mm-hmm. about the gentleman in Wyoming with his son Mm -hmm. waiting on the side of the road for Brent to come by and how afraid she was for him in some of these places because a lot of people were violent with him Mm
1: -hmm. and
0: ugly and potentially very dangerous. And the stereotype, you know, the stereotype of the gay man versus the stereotype of the person that hates gay men, um, both were shattered in your documentary. Both were shattered. And the the gentleman that said, I wanted my son to meet you, this cowboy, this guy with a cowboy hat and a truck in Wyoming that was with his little boy, that was a really beautiful memory. And I yeah. loved how I loved how you used the um shot from inside the car. To sort of reenact that, and I know you didn't have that footage to reenact it, but I could, (laughs) I could see it, yeah, in my in my mind's eye. I could clearly, clearly see it. So, bravo! Oh, thank you. Good good job on that. (laughs) Um, I loved the um, uh, part about Florida and the snakes. (laughs) That that going around the country and and. Uh, getting to Florida, which is always a weird place. Florida's weird. We all know that. Mm -hmm. Um, But the snakes in Florida and and what he said about this snake, that he was scared. I was like, Indiana Jones and Brent Nicholson. (laughs) Yeah, Brent
1: really is afraid of snakes. He does not like snakes. And that Tamiami Trail, I mean, I've driven it. And I didn't like driving it in my car, you know. Mm. A lot of creatures
0: out there. Um What did he say? 20 snakes a day, something like yeah. 20 snakes a day. And he was and he has a huge phobia of snakes and would jump on the hood of the car. Yeah. And I tell you, in a very intense, in a very intense documentary about something that is, you know, it is life or death. Um the the comic relief there that you gave us at that moment was very, very well timed and much appreciated and, and really uh, stuck out in my mind.
1: Oh, so thank you. you. I think you. you've got to, you no know, matter what the, how serious the subject matter is, you have to have room for some laughter or, or some humor. There's always, there's humor in the darkest of times. Um, so trying to provide that, you know, if you want your audience to cry, you, you've got to give them a few laughs as well.
0: Yeah. The um the graphic, that you that you put up about Diane Feinstein Feinstein mm-hmm. versus Ed Koch mm-hmm. uh, was really powerful too. Would you Would you tell the listeners just a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. So um, the uh, Brent I had gone to see. Oh gosh, now uh, uh, the Normal Heart at the Public Theater, mm-hmm. and part of the set for the Normal Heart was this you know, pointing out how much Diane Feinstein money that she had gotten to help people with AIDS in California and then how little, almost non existent, that New York and Ed Koch had invested in helping people in New York. Mm -hmm. And so that's what that moment is about because, you know, it's just the community was feeling, I mean, so ignored. He talks about it later, the the sort of awfulness of having to accept this award when he comes back from the run from Ed Koch I and having it. really just wanting to tell him to, you know, F off because he had the blood of his friends. You know, if, if they had taken action earlier, if there'd been more, you know, he, he felt like
0: there was just such an underinvestment in New York in the early days. That so, expression on his face. <laughs> when he's standing next to Ed Koch and talking about how he was feeling was priceless (laughs) because, because that was the only time in the whole film that, that I saw that expression, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which was, it was very different than all the (laughs) other expressions. And he was still smiling, but unbelievable. Um, Please watch this film because you have to see that. It's just incredible. Um, I learned something here. I, I did not know that Texas was the fourth highest uh, rated state at that time for uh, infection. of. I didn't HIV. know that either. Texas. You know, you'd think, oh, New Jersey, New York, mm-hmm. you know, so, like uh, California, whatever. But Texas. Yeah. And I'm wondering why. Maybe just, I don't know I mean maybe it's just the size
1: of the state alone um okay but who knows? I I don't know it's a, I actually don't know the answer to that question yeah so. no
0: I'm gonna check it out because I I thought that that was really 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 amazing um and and we know and, and he did and and Brent did mention this uh that that um, minority communities suffer the most from now uh from HIV mm-hmm AIDS. And um, there's still a lot of work to do. But I liked it when when he said, you know, AZT wasn't AZT wasn't enough. And I had forgotten about AZT Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and um, how it was sort of helping people, but not quite you know, people were still taking it, maybe, maybe um, lengthening their lives a little bit, but AZT wasn't enough. Mm-hmm. That really, really stuck with me. Also, um, the bugs in the car on the Tierra <laughs> Trail. Tell me about what you thought about Brent's mother.
1: Oh, Brent's mother. I mean. It's amazing how she became such a a character in the movie, but she, her friendship with Brent, the way that Brent talks about her, they were, they were best friends. And she was so ahead of her time in terms of like, (sighs) she became, he came up with this idea and and immediately she's like, well, I have to go with you, you know? And so he's running around the country and she's driving her car behind him, this Buick, making sure that he's safe. She is you know, mothering to the extreme, but she would go out, you know, every night they would go to the sort of gay clubs, wherever they were and sell t-shirts and buttons to raise money for the community that they we're in. And her mom would go, I, I mean, his mom would go. And, you know, she, she she became this parent for so many people who were yes. abandoned by their families. Yes. Um, she became a mother figure for so many um, gay men and women and people who just weren't accepted. And you know, when we found that footage of her giving that speech. About, you know, I want to talk to parents of America. And if you're worried about, you know, if you're focused on, you know, being critical of your child or not loving them because of who they are, stop it. They need love. They need your love. And it was just such a beautiful message from someone who was already, you know, in her 70s. She started, I think she was 69 when the run started, but like, and who'd grown up, you know, just so progressive and so
0: just just an amazing person. What is she was so she was a strong, fierce mother. Mhm. You know, she was a ferocious mother. Yeah. Um she she really moved me. Yeah. Um, yeah. And,
1: you know, the editor, Greg, I'm going to my editor, he still cries every time, you know, we say when she she dies in, in the story of the movie and yeah. he still cries every time, even though he's watched it so many times, but it yep. is like you get to know her in the movie. Totally.
0: Totally. And then totally. it's like,
1: you've lost this person you've become attached to. And we sort of go, you know, we
0: experience just a, a portion of what Brent felt when he lost yeah. his mother. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Tell me what, in in your what was the hardest what was the hardest thing you had to overcome to mm. make this film?
1: Well, you know when we started, we started filming in the summer of 2019, and Brent was not well, so there was a sense of like let's film all of Brent's interviews first, um, and you know. There's been times where we've almost lost him. You know, he's been up and down with his health. He was hospitalized twice during the pandemic with different, um, uh, not COVID, but like different infections and things. And, um, I really think that being involved in the movie and the theater show has given him some, something to be excited about. But, you know, that was a challenge. Um, the biggest challenge I think is also how do you tell someone's whole life? You know, how do you focus? Like we had so much footage and it's just writing. How do you, how do you find the right story? And then how do you build the thread and how, you know, I've done a lot of short documentaries. I, I, um, my editor and I had done, um, I don't know, maybe 30 or 40 of tribute videos for award shows or, the NEA Opera Honors, so a lot of opera luminaries, and then also jazz. So um, jazz, like big... Thing. And so we would do a lot of these things where we'd interview um, you know, their colleagues and people about their lives. We'd interview them, and you construct you know, a 7- to 10-minute story. But when you're looking at a feature length and trying to figure out how to structure it, I mean, it, it's just hard. I, it could have been so much longer. But then, again, it's like you have to just distill it to the things that are important, the things that you really want to share and what, what I, you know, what I felt would move people, like what I found moving about Brent's story, I tried to put in the movie so that the audience could kind of experience what I'd been experienced by getting to know Brent and getting to know his story.
0: Yep. Yep. Um, well, how did you know you were done? (laughs) That's a great question. Um,
1: God, are you ever done? Um, right. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I think, I think we got it to a place where it was locked enough to do the sound edit in the score. And we, we sh- we showed it very, you know, I'm, I like to get strategic feedback at different stages. So we have lots of friends, our team, you know, who I would take feedback from, but let's say it's a cut. I'm going to show it to two people and get notes from two people who have different, you know, do different things in their lives. And then we make a change and then, you know, see if we were closer. And then again, let's do like another round of feedback. Let's get this screenwriter. Let's get this director. Let's get, you know, someone who's not in the film industry and try to just get some feedback. And then, you know, really you're the first audience. So it's, to me, it's done when I feel like you like to watch it. (laughs) It feels right. It resonates. And then, but one thing, one thing that was really interesting is like, as you take it to festivals you know it's you have to watch it over and over and they're still like oh i could fix that i could fix that little moment right um and then when we t- it, you know, so now it's going to be on american public television starting in june and um we had to take nine minutes off the movie which i oh i'm sure God. you know nine minutes five it's minutes huge. was like huge. okay But the four minutes after the first five minutes, there was some real like kill your darlings kind of moments. That was that was hard. It was hard. And then also it's like you just you got to have it still make sense and got to make sure that the things that are set up that pay off later are still in there and all of that. So that to me was really challenging. And, you know, I think but but I do like the length it is now, which is, you know, just a shorter length. I think it plays better um you know but that is so hard cuz you've done it, yeah. everything and then you got to change you got to do a new sound mix you got to adjust the music it's a, it's it's a hard thing to go back into a film
0: and unlock it there there definitely is um when you love a topic and you love the content there is a and I've ha- I've done this um there is a tendency for redundancy mm-hmm because you love it so much, you, you know you want to. You think it should be there, but I, I do think that that you're so smart to have brought in other people to to help you and yeah. and advise you. And I think it's really scary to show things to people. When you just said I showed it to two people, I'm like, oh my god, <laughs> <laughs> that's terrifying. You know, yeah, it's like- it,
1: it definitely is. But some, you're right, the redundancy.
0: Yeah, is is a
1: key thing, and um, you know, there's a few people who were good, really good at those notes. You don't need this. You did, you set this up in the previous section. You don't need this. Yeah, and it, it's extra. Like you just take it, lose it. And it's yeah. amazing how that tightens things up in terms of yeah. pacing and just you know.
0: I'm I'm just starting to work on a documentary. We've done a lot of filming, and um, Kara, you've you're helping me so much right now. <laughs> <laughs> i not kidding.
1: Yeah. I might, I, I I might think need it, you to watch it. <laughs> oh, of course. I'd be happy to, I'd be happy okay. to, you know, okay. it's, it is really like, I think you have to protect your kind of your artistic bubble, but there yeah. is a time where you're too close to it and you need some outside feedback, but you don't want to send it to 10 people. It's like, you've got to be like, okay, who,
0: mm-hmm.
1: who, like, let me just select a team and then kind of think of like, which person do you not want to see it until it's almost finished? You know what I mean? Yeah. Where there's there's yeah. people that you're close to that you're okay, kind of, you know, having a work in progress. And you know, they're not going to judge you. Like right. they, they, they know your work, they know you and they know where it could go and how you could shape it.
0: I could definitely feel your, um, restraint, uh, especially the last, the last quarter of the, mm-hmm. film. Um, because you do want to wrap it up, yeah, and you want to come full circle and you want to remind people of the themes. And um, you definitely accomplished that. So good job. And okay, one one thing that I, I did want to say was uh, the African American guy in the play, mm-hmm. who was singing. Aaron. Yeah. Right. Aaron Casey. Oh my God. He was so good. <laughs> mm-hmm. And he, I couldn't, he was like a eye magnet. Like I couldn't take my eyes off of him.
1: I know the whole cast was amazing. But right, Brad, right. when he starts that song, it just kind of takes your breath away. Um, it did. It did. And Everything, I know yeah. for Brent, you know, it's like, I mean, the lyrics for that song, which is about the saint, this, this nightclub yeah. where, you know, I I created those, the lyrics out of an interview with Brent. So I took the transcription from my interview with him and I turned it into like singable lyrics. And like, then there's another song that's not in the documentary, but it was like a poem or like a song that Brent wrote in 1982 that we finally set to music. Yeah. And, and um, you know, the words for the final song, which are the beginning of the credits, remember the same with that song. So it was this thing that he had imagined for decades. And then we hired a composer and all of a sudden it's, there's this song. So that experience for Brent to see his own writing come to yeah. musical life was just really, really special. Like to me, the play, you know, the play was was because Brent and I bonded. Oh, we were just we love both love theater. But Brent sort of confessed in our first meeting that. He still had this dream to return to acting, to return to the stage. So, you know, I thought that was important for him and and because he always wanted to. So like, I felt like for storytelling purposes, he
0: needed that for himself. Yep. And I'm so sorry, because I did miss this at the beginning when we started. He, he was a playwright. Yep. And, and as a playwright and seeing his work... And looking at that, I didn't know you wrote that song and mm-hmm. put that together, Cara, that was beautiful, well done. Um, I, I think that um, understanding that he was a playwright, that he was a creative person, mm-hmm. was really important to the story.
1: Yeah, it was the thing that really bonded us in that first meeting, you know, we talked about, he studied with Uta Hagen, He's like one of the best acting teachers of all time. Just talking about like, you know, I moved to New York to be an actor in 2001 and lived that life. And, you know, that was his life until he really, until he left for the run, he was an actor and a playwright and, you know, did all of these things. And so, you know, when you've lived that, that sort of struggling New York actor life. You're, you oh you understand. God. You understand what it is, is like and how hard it is and that sort of struggling and rejection. And so, um, to get to make the theater show with him and literally, you know, we, I, I just, I cast this ensemble of, of young people to like literally play Brent to step into his shoes and then Brent getting to work with them. Um, to me, Fantastic. it was about like how, how do you pass the story to the next generation? And that the play was literally like, let's just have the next generation join Brent on stage and help tell his story.
0: Cara, I, I just want to say um, one, one quick little housekeeping thing. Cause I, we do need to wrap. Yes. Um, please. Uh, when we do just don't hang up yet. Okay. Um, but uh, I think you created something that has a lot of texture to it. And uh has several levels, and I think that you um, made a perfect film. Say it. Say
1: it. <laughs> Thank you. That, that makes me want to cry. You know, I know you know how hard it is, and yeah. Um, yeah. It's just, it's, and, and I really wanted to make something that Brent would be proud to have as his legacy out in the world. You know, we don't know how long Brent will be with us. And he's still with us right now. And I I look forward to him experiencing the show, you know, I mean, the the film out in the world.
0: Um, Yes. Yes. And uh, tell us where people can watch it now. Yeah. June so it's in June and
1: um, it's going to be on American public television so it's going to be on stations across the United States um, we're starting to get the listings of the individual times and stations I know so there's a PBS digital sub channel called World Channel and the first um, sc- uh, screening there is on June 2nd at 8:30 p.m. on East Coast time and if you go to the website for the love of friends, we have a calendar that links to we're just filling in all of the all of the possible ways you can watch the movie wherever you live. So pretty Good. much, it's hitting every major city um, and a lot of small ones too. So you know, it it it'll start in the month of June and it'll keep playing probably for a year on different stations. Tell me,
0: who is your your publicist, your PR person? To uh, Sage Sage PR and Nicole Sage Nicole Sage. Who we who works as hard as anyone could I mean amazing amazing person um and I'm so grateful that she introduced us she said I think I have an interview for you Sarah
1: (laughs) so it's been so wonderful talking to you and I look forward to seeing your film and I'd
0: absolutely watch it at any time all right Cara thanks for being on Girls on Film I'm Sarah Smith and we are out